Let's turn back this morning to the book of 1 Timothy chapter 5. This morning, considering verses 24 and 25 in a message that we have entitled Reputation. Verses 24 and 25 read as follows. Some men's sins are open beforehand, going before to judgment, and some men they follow after. Likewise, also the good works of some are manifest beforehand, and they that are otherwise cannot be hid. Last week's message considered the ever-present reality in the world of accusations, especially accusations against an elder. You might recall if you were here with us, we spoke from verse 19, against an elder received not an accusation, but before two or three witnesses. And we learned the importance of credible witnesses, what you'd call credible evidence of objectivity, hearing a matter before we answer it, we learned about discipline on the guilty, and we learned about doing things without partiality, without playing favorites. Our message today is somewhat similar to that in that it deals with the subject of reputation, specifically when someone comes into an assembly that perhaps has a reputation that is a little more nefarious. You might have heard the reputation of someone that's a negative reputation, and the fact that Sometimes you know things about someone before they ever grace your presence. Perhaps grace isn't the correct word. And sometimes after a person has come into a congregation, you learn things about them that are not pleasant, that are not positive. And so as we told you, as we gave you the title of today's message, our thoughts very much have to do with reputation. And this is something that as we come to the end of the message today, while we'll speak concerning reputations in general, we end today's message on a very important and a very crucial admonition concerning what our reputation should be in the world. What should you as a Christian be known for? If a person looks at you and they think of you, what is it in their mind that, st- that it is that stands out above any other fact, any other detail about you as they consider you. Now, I'm sure that we all know what the word reputation means, right? No one in here, if you say the word reputation, says, I don't understand. I don't know what the word reputation means. But for the sake of being thorough, we're going to do as we usually do and give you a definition. Reputation is defined as the beliefs or opinions that are generally held about someone or something. And we all said, gotcha. We knew that. We know what it means to have a reputation. As we begin to develop this thought for you this morning, one of the things that we'll see is that everyone has a reputation. Everyone has a reputation. We're all known for something. Unless unless you're a hermit who lives on top of Montesano in the middle of the woods and you never come out and talk to any other people, you have a reputation. If you have a job, you have a reputation at work. If you have a family, and we all have a family, you have a reputation. So you could be a hermit, but if you have brothers and sisters or parents, and everyone has parents, you're you're still known as a hermit by the people that actually know you. We all have a reputation. It's one of those inescapable realities in the world that we are known by something. People know something about us. These verses, as we begin to introduce them to you, also depict the reality of church discipline in the atmosphere of the church. Look at verse 24. Some men's sins are open beforehand, as we'll speak about that in just a moment. 
For some men's sins to be open beforehand or evident manifest known, then that indicates to us that as they come to you from somewhere else, there could have been church discipline on someone for you to be aware of what type of life that they lived when they were among another congregation. Church discipline was very much a part of the first century church, and it's to be a part of the church in all centuries. In this case, the case of evil, it means that evil has been dealt with. When someone comes into a congregation, their evil is, their sins are open beforehand. It's known what they had done before they came into a congregation. So that implies very strongly the concept of church discipline. Now just briefly to connect this with last week's message, we ended with verse 21 that these things, the discipline even of an elder should be done without partiality, without playing favorites. We find two verses. Verse 22, lay hands suddenly on no man, neither be partaker of other men's sins, keep thyself pure. That passage means that we are not allowed to ordain a novice. And we find that in the qualifications of a minister we've already looked at as we have preached through this book when we were in 1 Timothy chapter 3. And the qualifications of a bishop, of an ordained elder, he must not be a novice. And so we don't suddenly lay hands on anyone. If a man joins the church, if he's converted, we don't ordain him to be a gospel preacher the next week. We have to try him. We have to vet him. We have to know him. We have to train him. Ministers have to be trained. We don't simply throw someone to the wolves. And I believe that that's an area that we've been, in some cases, in some areas, deficient in. We need to train our ministers. That doesn't mean we send them to seminary. The church is the seminary. The church is the institution that trains and raises up elders. Paul left Titus in Crete to ordain elders. Titus was to train them instruct them as a father instructs a son, a mentor to an apprentice, a father and a son in the ministry. He trains him, he teaches him, and then that man is to exercise in the capacity in which he is expected to perform, if you will. He is to speak to the church, he is to grow in that, he is to exercise in his ministry, and eventually when the time is right, he is to be ordained. Lay hand suddenly on no man, neither be partaker of other men's sins, keep thyself pure. Verse 23, drink no longer water, but use a little wine for thy stomach's sake and thine often infirmities. Timothy was a man that is believed to have suffered from stomach ailments. And so Paul prescribes the medicinal usage of wine for his stomach's sake and his often infirmities. Now from this passage, you can learn a couple of truths. First of all, that inherently alcohol is not evil, Paul doesn't say drink no longer water but use a little grape juice. He doesn't say eat a few grapes, but he says use a little wine. A little wine can be something that is medicinal, and as we know that it's not the substance that's evil, but what people do with the substance that's evil. And as Christians, we want to be very sure that even if you have a little wine, that you don't allow yourself to be brought under the power of any other thing. And this is one of the reasons that we should be very clear concerning the usage of illicit substance. Anything that brings us under the control of something else is to be avoided. We're to be sober-minded people. And being sober-minded people, we don't need to allow any sort of substance to take over us and to control us and to dull us that we lose control of our being. 
But Paul prescribes this. He prescribes to use a little wine. That also tells us, point number two, that it's fine to use medicine when you need medicine. There was a fad that swept through Christianity years ago, and it was that medicine is evil. And if you take medicine, then you're guilty of witchcraft. And some popular Christian teachers and popular Christian counselors were espousing that in pulpits, and it went as far, they went as far as to say that if you use any sort of prescription drugs, whether it be, in some cases, pain relief or others, medicine to help you with your mental state, you were guilty of witchcraft because the word witchcraft in Greek is the root for the English word pharmaceuticals. And so they made the point, based upon the etymology of that word, that since pharmaceuticals comes from the word for witchcraft, then to use medicine is to be guilty of witchcraft. Now, by the way, sometimes etymology is not the end all when it comes to definitions. Why do we call pharmaceuticals pharmaceuticals? Because back in that day, witches would make potions with things like heroin, and then they would prescribe the potion made out of heroin to get people high, and that's why the magic worked for the people. It wasn't that they really had magical powers. If you give somebody heroin in our day, if you give someone LSD, they may think that magic is happening all around them, and it's because they're hallucinating. And so that's what witchcraft would commonly engage in in that day. That doesn't mean that it's wrong today to take a Tylenol if you have a headache. Please, by all means, take a Tylenol if you have a headache. In that little movement, I'm going to hit this and move on because this is not the message for today, but in that movement it was often one of the hobby horses that it's wrong to use any sort of doctor care when it comes to childbirth. And they would say that, you know, childbirth isn't to be numbed or dulled, and you shouldn't use any medicine when you have a child. In fact, you should have your children at home, and you shouldn't use doctors, but you should use midwives. And what I wanted to just say to all the preachers who said it's wrong for a woman to use medicine or pain relief in childbirth is fine. When your appendix ruptures, let's operate on you and take out your appendix without medicine. Now, wait a minute. Wait a minute. No, no, no. <laughs> You're not operating on me without medicine, exactly. And so if you have a child and it's something that you want to do, by all means, use the medicine that's available. This is teaching the medicinal use of a pain reliever. Alcohol can be a pain reliever. And so it's fine to use medicine as medicine is needed. At the same time, we want to be balanced as we are with all things, as we want to be. Let your moderation be known to all men. We don't want to abuse any sort of substance, including medicines. And that's certainly a problem in our country today. Moving on to our verses today. Some men's sins are open beforehand, going forward to judgment. Now, perhaps Paul is still considering the concept, the context of ministers. We've studied a lot about the office of elder and the office of bishop in this book together. We've learned the qualifications of ministers. We've learned that there are some who teach error in our first message in this series. Twenty messages ago was demanding the gospel that we don't allow people, we should not allow people to teach things that are heretical. We've learned the proper care of ministers in verse 17 as we looked at the elders that rule well, that labor in the word and doctrine, the fact that we shouldn't muzzle the ox, and we learned that we shouldn't hear an accusation against an elder. Perhaps Paul still has the concept of elders in mind when he says some men's sins are open beforehand. 
In other words, there are ministers who teach error, and many times their reputation precedes them. In fact, in the book of 2 Timothy chapter 2, Paul would warn, he would name names, and he would warn against two men, Hymenaeus and Philetus, who concerning the truth have erred, saying that the resurrection is past already and overthrown the faith of some. Their evil, their evil doctrine was known beforehand. And so their reputation preceded them so that Timothy and all under Timothy's pastoral care, all that Paul had warned against these men, they knew about these men and the evil that was associated with this ministry. Because when you overturn the faith of someone, that is evil. That is evil. It is evil to damage someone's faith. Let me just tell you, tangent, Jesus says that it's better for a millstone to be hanged around your neck and for you to be drowned in the depth of the sea than to damage one of his little children. And by children, he had already said in Matthew 18, which is one instance of that statement, that except we be converted as little children, we shall in no wise enter into the kingdom. So when he's talking about children, yeah, he has reference to younger people, but he also has reference to any of you who are converted as a little child to overthrow the faith of some. To overthrow the faith. It's better to have a millstone hanged around your neck and be drowned in the depth of the sea. God takes that seriously. To damage one of God's little children. I tremble at the thought of God's judgment against those who do such things. The old figure of speech is, I don't want to be standing around when the lightning strikes. You ever heard that expression? I don't want to be standing there when the lightning strikes. If you're by this person and you hear thunder, run away. Because you know that it is going to be full of wrath and indignation. If he says it's better to be drowned with a millstone around your neck. How terrifying is that? Which is why we should all beware in the way that we deal with others. We don't want to damage a child of God as we speak to them. We're to be... Gentle, even as a nurse cherisheth her children. And so perhaps he's speaking of ministers that overthrow the faith of others and their evil is known beforehand, their sins are known beforehand. But at the same time, this applies certainly to everyone. If a person is actively engaging in open sin, does not their reputation precede them? Don't you know, if you've heard of them, their reputation, don't you know that they're a person of ill report? As we speak about this, young folks, and maybe some of us not so young folks too, one of the thoughts that kept entering into my mind as I was studying this week is that evil communications corrupt good manners. If you know a person is actively engaging in evil, if their sins are open beforehand, then avoid them because their behavior will rub off on you. The Proverbs warns against being around an angry man. Why? Lest you be like him. It warns against answering a fool in his folly. Why? Lest thou be like him. The behaviors we're around can influence us we can adapt those or adopt those into our own personality. We can emulate the foolish, 
evil, sinful actions of others. And so, young folks, be aware and be cautious. Evil communications corrupt good manners. Certainly this applies to everyone. Our reputation usually precedes us. Some men's sins are open beforehand, going before to judgment, and some men they follow after. What does this mean? Well, first of all, open beforehand means conspicuous. It means visible. It means manifest. Now, it's interesting. I looked this verse up in a few different translations. I read and preach from exclusively, exclusively the KJV, but sometimes I look it up in other versions just for my own entertainment. And I looked this word up, and it was interesting that in one translation, the word conspicuous was there. And people who use that often say that the KJV is far too difficult to read and that we should use other newer versions because they're easier to read. Well, let's just examine the evidence about that on this particular passage. On one hand, you have the word open. I think we all know what the word open means. On the other hand, you have the word conspicuous. Four syllables versus two syllables. Which word is easier to know, open or conspicuous? I think open is easier to understand. But that is a good definition of this word, conspicuous. What is something that is inconspicuous? Winslet children like to be inconspicuous when they do things that they know they should not do. That means they want to be invisible. They want to hide. And, and you know if you have a house full of toddlers that the most dangerous moment in your day is when they suddenly get quiet. Because something is broken, something is being broken, a wall is having graffiti put on it. Or, you know, one of the things that Annabelle likes to do is take all of the chemicals in the bathroom, all of the hair product and shaving cream, and mix it with food coloring and make a bowl of slime. If you have YouTube, parents, watch out, because your children are going to watch videos on how to make slime. And the next thing you know, you're out of shaving cream, and the wall is ruined. And you have to repaint it. Anyway, be that as it may. Inconspicuous is when you're out of sight. And as we know, out of sight is often out of mind. I worked at a state park for two and a half years in college. And one of the men there was very, very lazy. He had that job because he was too lazy to do anything else. And he would often tell me, Ben, you're working too hard. They're going to expect this of you. Out of sight is out of mind. Drive your lawnmower out somewhere in the woods where nobody can see you and take a nap. I don't know if he thought it would make the rest of them look bad if one of us was actually working. But if you ever were placed in the winter when we would cut down trees and pick up limbs and take care of the, the winter park maintenance, if you're ever in a truck with him, you know that half of your day was going to be spent backed out somewhere behind a brush pile where nobody could see you while he would take naps and read the newspaper and listen to talk radio. But he would often tell me, out of sight is out of mind, inconspicuous. Some men's sins are open beforehand, are conspicuous, are visible. Now this word open beforehand, these words open beforehand, translate from the same Greek word as manifest beforehand in verse 25. So to be open beforehand is the same as to be manifest beforehand. Just to continue to emphasize the point, to be open beforehand, the sins of some men is the same as to be manifest beforehand. In other words, you see the sin, you're aware of the sin, you're aware of the trouble, you're aware of the destructive personality, 
long before it ever arrives in your congregation. Now, we're learning a message. This applies to every area of life. But remember, at its core, this is a message from an apostle to a pastor about what takes place in their church life. To remind you of earlier in this book, Paul writes to him about how he should behave himself where? In the house of God. And so while this message applies to every area of life, how many of you have someone that is in your company and you know when they arrive, oh boy, he's here or she's here. What a wonderful day this will be. While it applies everywhere you go, most certainly it applies to church. We talked recently about the fact that after Paul's departure, he warned that grievous wolves would enter in, not sparing the flock. We have to walk circumspectly. That word means in every direction looking. Circum, circle. Spectly, spectacle, eye. Looking every direction. As a part of this, when we see someone that we know is dangerous approaching, well, we take heed and we brace ourselves. There have been times that people who are troublesome personalities move from congregation to congregation, causing trouble, and everywhere they go, there's trouble. And I've often thought, what would I do in such a case if someone that I knew was trouble ever came here? And I would have a very stern conversation in the pastor's office about the way things are done and the way things are not going to be done and there would just be a very frank conversation that, look, we do not want trouble here. We are at peace here. And we value our peace. And there are just certain things that won't be tolerated. And so if a destructive personality were to come here, we would have to sit down with them and have a conversation. If you want to be here, these are the rules. And if you can't abide by that, there are plenty of other places to go. You might think, that sounds awful harsh. But the peace of the church is too precious to risk on allowing destructive behavior. Now, we've all experienced times in church. We, we've all been in churches a long time, and many of us. We've experienced times of turmoil and times of peace. There is nothing more precious than a church at peace. Now, I'm thankful for the peace that we have here. And, in fact, I was thinking about it all week, how blessed we are here at Flint River Primitive Baptist Church. Last week I was standing outside after church and I was speaking to a brother who was visiting here from Florida and I was watching all of you walk out and you're talking and you're laughing and we're maybe goofing off would be a, is that a theological term? We're, we're goofing off and we're joking around and I, I just looked at him and I looked at y'all and I said, you know what, I am so blessed to be here. I am so blessed to be here. And so today our scripture reading, Psalm 122, I was glad when they said to me, let us go into the house of the Lord. How many times did you read the word peace in that psalm? I will pray for the peace of Jerusalem because my companions are there. What a blessing it is to have peace in church. We preserve that by walking circumspectly. And when we see the wolf coming, we say, stop, hold on. We have to be men about it. Paul wrote to the Corinthians, quit you like men. Quit you like men is an old expression that means be a man. Stand up, be a man, have some chest, broaden your shoulders, 
and stand for what is right. Some men's sins are open beforehand means that you know about their destructive past before they ever arrive. Their reputation precedes them. Now this expression, going before to judgment, isn't to be understood as God's judgment. This doesn't mean God's judgment, though God certainly has judgment in this life or in the life to come for sin. But we're learning about the judgment of others, the judgment of people in the church. It goes before to judgment, meaning the judgment of man. They're judged in advance for the things that they've done in their past. And so if a person is known for... Last week we talked about the Me Too movement and how in the church it was swept under the rug in some of the largest denominations in our country and because of that abusers were allowed to prey on innocent people in the church for decades and how ashamed that was. It goes for to judgment meaning that you've heard of it and there's been judgment already passed against the person who has committed the sin. Judgment has already been passed against the person committing the sin. They're judged in advance because of the things that they've done, which you hear through the accurate report of others, as we've said a dozen times in this morning's message, the reputation precedes them. Now, some interpret this as to say that there are sins that are judged in this world or sins that are judged in the world to come. That's a true principle, but it's not what he's talking about today. What he's talking about is the manifestation of a person's evil before you know them or their good before you know them or finding out the hard way as the evil follows after. Now, as we think about the fact that some sins go before to judgment. Going before to judgment. This does more than imply that judgment and discernment is to be a part of the life of the believer. How many times have you heard it when you said that's not right behavior? The immediate kickback is what? Judge not. Well, yes, that is in the Word. That is inspired Scripture. Jesus spoke those words in the Sermon on the Mount. Judge not that ye be not judged. But he goes on to talk about judgment in that, saying that whatever judgment we judge, the same will be rendered unto us. In other words, if I'm harsh with others, God is going to be harsh with me. If I'm gentle and patient with others, God is going to be gentle and patient with me. And at the end of the day... At the end of the day, ultimately, none of us have the right to look at a person and judge their eternal destiny. The Lord knoweth them that are his. I don't. We have the parable of the wheat and tares in Matthew 13 that explicitly tells us that we cannot always distinguish between wheat and tares. You remember that parable that a man went and sowed wheat in a field. And an enemy came as he was sleeping and sowed tares, which is useless. And it looks like wheat, but it isn't wheat. And it's not able to be harvested and consumed. And it's a, it's a weed. 
And the apostles wonder, do we go and do we uproot all the tares? Is it our job to go and eradicate all the evil people from the world? Should that be our crusade to take up swords and anyone who denies Christ to execute? No, Jesus says you're, you're going to damage the wheat as you're trying to destroy the tares. Whose prerogative is that? Whose responsibility is that? It is the responsibility of God at the second coming of Christ. We let them grow up together, and in the harvest, they will be separated out. And as you know, through all of the passages teaching the second coming of Christ, as Jesus comes again, before him are gathered all nations, and he divides them as a shepherd divides between his sheep and the goats, and he places the sheep on the right hand, and he says, Come, ye blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. To those that are on the left hand, he says, depart into everlasting torment. It is the God who is the Lord, who is the judge, who separates between sheep and goat, wheat and tares at the end of time. We don't judge who is and is not a child of God. We simply don't have the right. We don't have the information. We don't have access to their heart. We don't have access to the Lamb's book of life. We don't know who is a child of God. Nothing makes me more sick to my stomach than when preachers begin, and I can see it from a mile away, as they begin to start down that path of naming who is and is not a child of God in the world. They are children of God, and so God knows those that are his. But there is a place for judgment in the life of a child of God. We use judgment every day. We use judgment every single day. How did you determine what you wanted to eat this morning? You had to judge. There was a judgment. What time did you go to bed last night? How did you decide that? Some of us stayed up too late. Some of us went to bed on time. How did you decide to go to bed on time? Well, you judged. You decided. You discerned. How do you know if what a person is teaching is true or false? You have to use discernment. You have to discern. Scripture commands us to try all things and hold fast that which is good, that which is true, that which is right. John would tell us in his writings that we are to try the spirits, try the spirits, for many false Christs have entered out into the world. There are many demonic influences in the world, and so we try them. That means that we put them on trial. We put them on trial. How do we determine whether or not the spirits, the influences, are legitimate or not? God gave us his word, and it thoroughly furnishes us unto all good works. Not our preconceived notions, and certainly not our hearts. People every day say, just follow your heart. Scripture says your heart is desperately wicked. Who can know it? If you follow your heart, it leads to destruction. Every person who ever betrayed their spouse for another person followed their heart straight into adultery and the destruction that comes from that. Now we're to discern. We're to use good judgment. And we know that. We know how we are to discern. We know how we are to judge through the declarations in the word of God. It truly furnishes us. It teaches us right from wrong. 
But these sins go forward, forth to judgment before to judgment. Because they go forward to judgment, there is a role for judgment and discernment in the life of a Christian. And some men, they follow after. What does that mean? It means that some sins you don't know about in the life of a person until after they've reared their ugly head in a congregation and destruction is there. You simply can't protect against all evil influences in the church. Wouldn't it be great if you could? But that's not the case. What did Paul say in Acts chapter 20? I know this. After my departing shall grievous wolves enter in, not sparing the flock. But what is the next thing that he said in Acts 20? That also men shall arise from among them speaking perverse things. Jude talks about it that men have crept in unawares. Crept in unawares. Sometimes people sneak in and do damage in a congregation. And in those cases the men and their sins follow after. Sometimes you know before a person comes in the repu- because of the reputation they have, and sometimes you learn after. Now, conversely and to the positive, likewise, also the good works of some are manifest beforehand. Sometimes, and I see this everywhere I go when I travel among the churches, there are people that you know, and their reputation for goodness precedes them. Now, I like to pick on Brother Hewlin, and he's not here today because they're at a meeting in another city, so we'll pick on him a little bit more than we usually do. When I travel around the country to preach the gospel in various primitive Baptist churches, it isn't uncommon at all for someone to walk up to me and say, you're from Flint River, isn't that the church that the chambers go to? It happens quite a bit, and I mean, I can be halfway across the country. And that can happen to me. Why? Because his good works have been manifest beforehand. His good works have gone beforehand and his reputation precedes him. He is known, he is known for his good works. In fact, there are some churches that you can visit around the country where they might even point at their cabinets and say, you see those cabinets right there? Those were made by Brother Hewlin Chambers. I was preaching down in South Florida one time, and they pointed to the cabinets and said, in the 1990s, he built those and drove them down here, and knowing him, he probably didn't even charge anything for them because that's just what type of a man he is. But his reputation precedes him. Now, hang on to that thought because that's how we're going to end our message today. The reputation that we all have and how we can steer that into a godly way. Their good works are manifest, that is to say you know that they are good men because their reputation of soundness in the faith, sincerity in worship, and acts of Christian charity precedes them. They that are otherwise cannot be hid. And this simply is saying the same thing as he said earlier about a bad reputation following after. They that are otherwise, that is good works that have not yet been made manifest, cannot be hid. What a blessing it is to a church when someone comes into a congregation and they begin 
to serve the Lord Jesus Christ and to be active in a church body. And their good works begin to manifest themselves after that person has joined in with the congregation. I've seen that so many times through the years. And as a pastor, nothing makes me happier than seeing a person or a family join in with the church and immediately take up the plow, as it were, and begin serving Christ in a congregation. I would give stories of things that have impressed me over the years, but I don't want to embarrass any of you here, and I have stories from every one of you here. Now, transitioning, we want to speak to you about the principles of reputation as we leave off this passage of Scripture for just a moment and look to the Proverbs. You notice last week we spoke to you from the Proverbs, and there were several that we shared with you. I might commend the Proverbs unto your daily reading as you read Scripture daily. I've said this many times in the past, but there are 31 chapters in the book of Proverbs, and in many months there are 31 days. And so you can read a proverb a day. If the day is the 25th, you can read chapter 25. If it's the first, you can read Proverbs chapter 1. And so you will have read through the entire Proverbs in a year 12 times. You read through the Proverbs, you read through the Proverbs, and you begin to absorb the wisdom that Solomon is communicating to you in the Proverbs. The writer of the Proverbs, Solomon, was the wisest human being who had ever lived. As he was a young man and was anointed as king over Israel, God comes to him in a vision and tells him, Ask of me anything and I'll give it to you. And Solomon didn't ask for riches. He didn't ask for the lives of his enemies. Sometimes you think, ask for the lives of your enemies. But when you're a king, you have enemies that want to take your life. And one of the common reasons for warfare and battle in that day is because some other person wanted your throne and so they wanted to kill you and you went to war with them. You know what Solomon asks for? Wisdom to rule over so great a people. And God blessed him to be the wisest man that had lived up until that point. And the Proverbs conveys this wisdom that God had given Solomon unto us. And so I would commend it to your daily reading. Proverbs chapter 20 and verse 11. Even a child is known by his doings, whether his work be pure and whether it be right. Even a child is known by his doings. Even a child cannot escape the reality of reputation. Now this phrase, even a child, this word even, tells us that if a child has a reputation, don't you know an adult has a reputation? The point is, from this passage, that we all have a reputation. And so I ask you, do your sins go beforehand to judgment? Or are your good works manifest before all? Even a child is known by his doings, whether his work be pure and whether it be right. Now as we begin speaking about reputation and the fact that we need to be concerned 
with honoring God that we not bring reproach upon the cause of Christ. That's why we need to be concerned with our reputation, not for the sake of me looking good in the eyes of others, but because God's name be not blasphemed. You remember when David sinned with Bathsheba, one of the things that Nathan the prophet told him is because you have done this, you've given reason for the enemies of God to blaspheme. It isn't just our reputation that's at stake. And, and let me just say that. Let me just say that and, and stomp around for just a moment on this point. You represent your family. You represent your last name. One of the things that I sought out to do in my early 20s was to redefine what it meant to be a Winslet. Because in my family history, the first one of us here was exiled here. In other words, we're here because we got kicked out of another country. That could be funny, you know, if you wanted to laugh at that. We're here because we're exiled. In my family history, on the Winslet side, you have alcoholics and you have bootleggers and you have womanizers and you have profane men who pass that on as a family legacy from generation to generation. But you represent that last name. That used to mean something to people. I'm representing my family. Let me go a step beyond that. Even more so, we are to represent the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so when we go out in this world Monday through Saturday and you engage in the various things that men engage in, remember at all times people are looking at you and they are seeing Flint River Primitive Baptist Church or whatever church it is that is your church home. And you are an ambassador of that church, a representative of that church, a delegate of that church. And beyond the name of the church being at stake, we are ambassadors for Christ himself. We're ambassadors of Christ himself. Now, as we think about delegates and ambassadors, those are words that are used in a political realm, in the sphere of world governments. What if the American ambassadors went to a worldwide summit? And what if the ambassadors went and partied? Maybe they pillaged. Maybe they stole. What sort of reputation would that earn for the country they represented? Wouldn't be a very good one, would it? Wouldn't you be ashamed to learn that some of your ambassadors went to another nation and behaved themselves in such an unbecoming, unseemly way? Apply that a hundred times to the fact that we're ambassadors for Christ. We ought to be concerned that we don't do anything that would tarnish the sweet name of Jesus in our community in the name of our congregation, in our community. Now, as we say this, reputation for the sake of being impressive is the sin of men-pleasing. So we have to strike the biblical balance. On one hand, we want to have a good name, that the name of Christ be glorified. On the other hand, you have the sin of men-pleasing, 
wanting to impress other people simply to be impressive. I've got to tell you, as a musician, that's almost the name of the game. And I have to mortify that. Oh, I want to impress them. You know, ask Sister Rachel. She'll tell you all about it. We were playing a joint concert, and she rolled her eyes one time, and she said, He's showing off. Maybe. Confess to you. I was showing off. I try to mortify that and to play to the best of my ability to the glory of God. And you'll find greater satisfaction, especially when things don't go right and you hit a wrong note. Or your chops give out halfway through the third set. I'm playing to the glory of God. I'm not concerned about the other factors. Ephesians 6 and Colossians 2 both warn against men pleasing. Proverbs 22, verse 1. As we think of the principles of reputation. A good name is rather to be chosen than great riches. And loving favor rather than silver and gold. Solomon also and often warns against riches in Proverbs, and he many times tells us things that are better than riches. In fact, he would at one point say that it's better to be simply in the middle, that, Lord, make me not poor, that I'm not tempted to steal, to eat, and at the same time make me not rich, that I be not lifted up and arrogant in my own eyes. It's a blessing to be what we call middle class, but a good name is to be chosen rather than great riches. To have a good name is better than to be a wealthy person. I can think of many people that are wealthy that have an awful, awful name. It's better to be a poor man with a good name in the Lord than it is to be a wealthy man. Ecclesiastes 7.1, a good name is better than precious ointment, which was another item of wealth and great expense in Solomon's day. To illustrate the fact that we all have a reputation to one degree or another, after one sort or another, there are many examples of reputation in the Word of God, just to briefly give you a few before we close today. Matthew chapter 3 and verse 7, there were Pharisees and Sadducees that came to John the Baptist Men were there at the River Jordan. They were confessing their sins. They were being baptized of John. The Pharisees and the Sadducees learn of this, and because there were men who were very interested in reputation, they come down to join in with John's disciples and be baptized, partly out of curiosity and more than likely partly because it made them look good. We're not at church today to make us look good. There are plenty of places that we could go that would make us look better in the eyes of this wicked and adulterous generation than church on a Sunday morning. But because of the popularity of John and the fact that all of the people regarded him as a prophet, these Pharisees, these Sadducees come to his baptism, and what does John say to them? Their reputation preceded them. Their sins were open beforehand. O oh, generation of vipers! Who hath warned you to flee from the wrath to come? How does he describe them? It's a generation of vipers. Why? Because he knew them. He knew their lives. He knew how they lived. I pray that no one would ever see me walk into a room and say, there is a member of the generation of vipers. Now, at the same time, I understand that to the natural man, the gospel is foolishness and folly. 
Friends, please understand. To an unregenerate, to the ungodly, you will be despised if you are following Christ. They will mock you. They will scoff at you. They will call you unlearned and ignorant. It's to be expected. It's to be anticipated. So it's not even that we're saying that we need to have a good reputation throughout society in general. If anything, we need to have a good reputation as God would define good, which we're going to answer in the last statement that we make today. How is it that we should desire our reputation be? What is a good reputation to God? In the book of Acts chapter 9, when Saul of Tarsus was regenerated on the road to Damascus, God sends a man named Ananias to him. Ananias, he says, Behold, I am here, Lord. The Lord said, Arise and go into the street which is called Straight, and inquire in the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus. For behold, he prayeth. Now Saul's reputation had preceded him. What was his reputation? Well, when Stephen was stoned publicly after preaching the gospel, they laid their garments down at a young man's feet named Saul. Saul was also consenting unto his death. After that moment, he obtained jurisdiction, paperwork, authority to go and to round up and execute Christians. And so everyone knew Saul. If he were to enter the room, you would be terrified because you knew that your time had come to suffer for Christ's sake. Ananias replies to the Lord, Lord, I have heard by many of this man how much evil he hath done to thy saints at Jerusalem. And here he hath authority from the chief priest to bind all that call on thy name. Saul's reputation had preceded him. And as you know, the Lord says, Go thy way, he's a chosen vessel unto me. What started the relationship between Saul of Tarsus and Jesus Christ? Saul was a chosen man. And he's going to bear my name before Gentiles and kings and children of Israel, and he will suffer many things for my name's sake. Positive example in the book of Mark chapter 1. And I love these statements in Scripture. When Jesus engaged in his public ministry, one of the words that is used a couple of times, is the word fame. Immediately, verse 28 of Mark 1, his fame spread throughout all the region round about Galilee. Jesus went and he did good things for people. He blessed people. He fed people. He healed people. He raised the dead. He healed withered limbs. He gave sight to the blind and hearing to the deaf. And because of the things that he had done, they began to reason among themselves, question among themselves. They were amazed. What thing is this? What new doctrine is this? For with, what a, with authority, he even commands the unclean spirits and they obey. And immediately his fame spread abroad throughout all that region round about Judea. Jesus' reputation preceded him. A reputation is an inescapable reality. We 
all have a reputation. Now, in closing, I want to ask you the question, what are you known for? What are you known for? Sometimes we're known for our carnal or earthly pursuits. If you're a musician, you want to be known as a good trumpet player, a good saxophone player, a good drummer. You want to be known as a good singer. If you're in a career, you want to be known as being efficient in that career. Who engages in a career and says, I really don't care if they think I'm a good employee or not? Not one of us. We want to be the best we can be what we do. In fact, that's biblical. Solomon said in Ecclesiastes, Whatsoever thy hand findeth to do, children, listen to me, Whatsoever thy hand findeth to do, do it with all thy might to put 100% of yourself into everything that you commit to do. Earthly pursuits like your career, your hobbies. There are other things that you could be known for that are wholesome. I hope that I have the reputation as a man who loves his children and is faithful to his wife. And that is a good reputation to have. Scripture says, a faithful man who can find that I would be known as a faithful man. That means a lot. Before the Christian... Defining a reputation that is good in God's words, that is good to the Lord. We're to be known for Christ. I hope that if there's one thing that anyone can say that stands out above everything else that identifies and defines who we are as individuals that above and beyond them all is Christ. What did Paul say? I determined to know nothing among you save Jesus Christ. In the book of Acts chapter 11, and this is where we will end our message today, it came to pass that a whole year they assembled themselves with the church and taught much people and the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. The disciples were called Christians first in Antioch. What does the term Christian mean? In America today, it's a box you check when you fill out a form. Religious preference. It's a bracket you fill out on your social media account. To be a Christian means, biblically, that you are associated with Christ to the degree that you are willing to suffer for his name's sake. To be willing to suffer for the name of Christ is to place him above everything in your life, even your own health, even your own comfort, your job, and even your family. That I would be known for Christ. If we are called Christian, the root of Christian is Christ. Before American, before Caucasian, before African, before Asian, before any other 
distinctive trait or any other grouping classification, beloved, we ought to want to be known for Christ. Christ. 